This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, who am I? Who am I? If you'd open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. And as you turn there, I want to introduce this passage with very valuable, timeless advice from the theologian John Calvin. Calvin wrote, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Our goal tonight is to follow Calvin's advice and through the eyes of faith and the gift of Isaiah chapter 6 to study our God because only then, like the prophet Isaiah, can we know ourselves. Let's read God's word in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full. Of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people. Of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. When my mom was a little girl, she saw The Wizard of Oz. And I know it's a really old movie at this point, um, but some of you maybe have seen the movie or perhaps you've read the book or you kind of know the story. In The Wizard of Oz, a girl named Dorothy is transported to a magical land and it's named for this wizard that everybody in the country assumes is this great and powerful and terrifying magician who rules over the land and would just as soon blast you as look at you. And they spend the entire journey assuming that that's who they're going to meet, only to find at the end of the journey that he's actually a very kind and thoughtful and helpful man behind a curtain. When they look behind the curtain, Oz the Great and Powerful becomes Oz the Kind and Helpful. Now let's imagine for just a moment <clears throat> that it was reversed. Let's imagine that they went on this journey to find Oz the Kind and Helpful. And they needed his help because they were in a little bit of a dilemma. They needed his help to understand who they were and what they were supposed to be and to kind of get some guidance on their journey. They went looking for Oz, the kind and helpful, and then they peeled back the curtain to reveal Oz, the great and terrible and powerful. The curtain revealed not who they thought 
they would see Oz the kind and helpful, but Oz the great and mighty, the powerful before whom all must tremble. I think that is the situation frequently for our hearts and in our culture and even among most, if not many, Christians in our culture that we think of God as the kind and helpful. He's the kind and helpful. He's there for you when you need him. And he would surely lend a helping hand. He's useful in very key moments to understand who you are and to give you some directions on your journey. He is the kind and helpful. But this passage and really the entirety of scripture is meant to be, if I can put it this way, a kind of opening of the curtain of reality. To see God, the great and holy one, the God who is beyond our imagination in his greatness, who is terrifying to his enemies, who is overwhelming even to the most majestic of created beings. The God who we might think of as kind and helpful is actually God, the great and powerful, the all-holy one. And what this passage does for anyone who reads it, and it does for us tonight, I, I hope as well, it's is by faith it opens the curtain. It says, come and look behind the curtain. Behind the curtain of your presuppositions about a kind and helpful God. Behind the curtain of God who is tame in your imaginations. Come and look behind the curtain to see God as he is. Not God as we would like him to be or feel him to be, but God as he is. And only in seeing that God can you know yourself. Only in seeing that God can you see the reality that you actually are in the presence of this God. The the invitation of this passage is that we would look behind the curtain and see the God in all of his holiness displayed in this passage and to understand this truth. Only those who see God's holiness can receive God's mercy. Only those who see God's holiness can receive God's mercy. Mercy, if we would be recipients of mercy, we must first see and live in the peeled back curtain reality of God's holiness. God, the great and holy. That's what this passage is intending to do to us. We we need three things that this passage speaks to us, three things that get us toward that greater reality of God. First, and most obviously, number one, we need to see God's Holiness, that's point number one. We need to see God's holiness. The passage begins with a a time reference that Isaiah makes. It's very helpful. He says in verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's actually not a throwaway time reference. It actually sets the context for this passage. Uzziah had been a good king for about 50 years. He, He was a good king. He did a lot of good things. So many people... Reading this letter at at the time of Isaiah, uh, having this encounter, and certainly later, they they would have thought of the death of Uzziah as a time of instability in the land. People had spent their whole lives with one good king, and there weren't a lot of good kings. This was one good king, and and their, their lives now were a place of maybe instability. What's the future going to be? Is the future king going to be as good as the old king was? So this was a time of instability in the land. And perhaps, perhaps more importantly is the sad and tragic end of Uzziah's life. He was a good king for most of his life. But in the end of his life, he, he gave in to pride. And he went into the temple of God in a way that he wasn't allowed to go in. And God immediately judged him on the spot and he became a leper. And he had to live separate from others because he was unclean. He was unclean, not just physically, but he was unclean in a spiritual sense as well because God was judging him for his brashness, thinking he could just waltz into the presence of God, which he was not allowed to do. So before, before Isaiah even gets to talk about what he sees of God, he, he reminds us, look, this, this is a time of, of instability in the land and also a time of sadness because even this good king had become proud and presumptuous in how he viewed God. He'd forgotten that he was God the great and holy. And, and he'd been judged very practically, tragically at the end of his life. He'd been judged by this presumption about God. So that's the context when Isaiah has this vision. He says, here's what I saw. 
I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He sees God on this throne, not because God actually needs a throne. All of these images are meant to communicate in a way that Isaiah would understand the greatness of God. And a high and lifted up throne would communicate that this is a a king above other kings. A a throne in those days, it it symbolized the greatness of his power and his authority, his, his supremacy, that he was above in rank. This is a high and lifted up throne. This is a throne that's taller than all of the other thrones. This is the highest throne Isaiah sees. It's it's a way of saying, here's the king above all kings. When the king died, I saw the king. When this little king died, I saw the real king. And he was high and lifted up. It it says that the train of his robe filled the temple. The the word there might be the the bottom part of his robe. It's a way of communicating that the, the lowest part of God would fill up the greatest and most holy and majestic temple that was in Jerusalem. That the lowest part of God was overwhelming to this man-made building that was attempting to communicate God's presence. Both of these are are trying to say to Isaiah, God is, is high and lifted up. His authority is unrivaled. He is sovereign over all rulers on earth. And his greatness, even the lowest part of his royalty, consumes this building that is so majestic in our sight. He says, God is above. He is high. He is greatly above all things we could imagine. Not only is God himself that way, but the people of his court are themselves overwhelming to Isaiah. He says he he sees these seraphim, these overwhelming beings. It says each has six wings, and they do things. If you look at your Bibles, look down there. They do things very specific with their wings. First, they cover their face. And and most likely, that's a way of indicating that they, they don't feel they have the right to look at God. For some reason, they they feel it would be respectful to cover their face because they are within eyesight of the Holy One. And these are holy beings. These beings have never sinned. They don't sin. They are incredibly powerful. They reflect God's glory. But they are so overwhelmed by the greater holiness of God that they say, "I, I cannot look at him. He is so great, so holy. My eyes should not be allowed to see him in his presence. They also cover their feet, it says. And probably what that's referring to is feet in those days would have been considered a kind of lowly part of of these beings. It's it's a way of demonstrating their humility before God. They they don't want to be undignifying, if I can put it that way, his presence. And so they cover themselves. Again, as a way of saying, so holy, I, I dare not look at him and I don't want him to have to see this part of me. I cover over myself and I cover over my sight because of how great this God is. Isaiah would be, would be seeing what in his mind would be a king so great, so powerful, so mighty, that even the mightiest courtroom attendants feel humbled, utterly humbled to even be in his presence. The, the mightiest attendants, the angelic attendants of God feel overwhelmed that they are even allowed to be there. That's what Isaiah sees. And and then they have this song. So he sees this, and then he begins to hear something. These seraphim are flying with the remaining wings that they have, and they have this continual job that's supposed to fill the air, the atmosphere of God's presence. The song is quite repetitive, quite simple, and quite profound. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In the Bible, and and you've probably heard this from your pastors at some point, but whenever God repeats a word over and over, it's it's a way of emphasizing how true it is. They, They don't have big caps or underline or italics or anything like we would in our printing, so they just repeat it. He's not just holy, which means morally pure and transcendent above. Now, he, he is that, but saying that once doesn't get it done. It doesn't communicate it. It, it. He is that. He is high above and morally pure. But but we have to say it again because he's 
If you go to that place where he's high above and morally pure, you would still see God at a distance in that same direction. So let's say it again. He, he is holy. But let's keep walking. He is, he is holy, holy, higher above, even the highest. And even more morally pure than even the most morally pure. But then here we are from this vantage point, having already called him holy. And he says, it's still not enough. Let's say it again. So they go further and they say, yes, but look back there and see that two times holy thing. And you have to go further out. He's higher above even the holiest of holy people. He's higher above. He's even more morally pure. In saying it three times, it's a way of saying the, the most perfectly transcendent thought you can possibly have, the most perfect moral purity you could possibly imagine, the perfection of moral purity and transcendence and glory, that is who we are singing about. He is the Lord, that word you notice in your Bible, it's capitalized, it stands for God's covenant name, the name of his promise to his people, and it says he is the Lord of hosts. It's it's a way of describing God's unrivaled might. No one on earth can challenge him. No army can stand against his. His might is beyond all human strength, beyond the strength of the cosmos. He is the God of unlimited power. No enemy can dare defy him and live. He is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. When they look out at creation, what what they see is a creation that resounds with the glory of its creator. They look out in creation and say, this earth shouts the glory of God. That is the God you are seeing, Isaiah. That is the God who is That is real. That is real and so profound and so holy and so right and true are these statements that in his vision, the foundations of the thresholds in verse four shake at the voice of him who called and the house is filled with smoke. Now for an Israelite like Isaiah who knows his Old Testament, he would immediately think of Mount Sinai when God came down and the mountain trembled and it was filled with smoke. It was a way of saying, God is here. God who made the mountains such that in his presence they shake. God who made light who made darkness and who is mysterious beyond our understanding and who conveyed that to the Israelites by a a cloud of smoke that covered the mountain. So that when God descended on the mountain, he said to his people, do not come near or you will die. Do not set one foot on the mountain or you will die. So holy, so great, so transcendent, so beyond, so other. That the idea is even the most stable, secure, holy building they could possibly have imagined shakes at the rightness of what they are singing, is covered at the power of God's presence. Isaiah sees God, God as he is. God in his unlimited holiness, moral purity, transcendent, the the holiness of his court, shouting his praise, things quaking and shouting. The veil is pulled back. And for Isaiah, God, who is not just the kind and helpful one, is now God, the great and holy one. God whose greatness is beyond the greatest one we can imagine. The greatest thing we can imagine, God, is far beyond that great thing. And Isaiah sees it. The curtain is pulled back. Isaiah, if I can put it this way, he is delivered from his small view of God. That was already most likely greater than most people around him. Isaiah probably wasn't some pagan, idol-worshiping, sinful Israelite at this point. We don't know exactly when he got this vision. But it's likely that he was a relatively morally pure, upstanding Israelite. It's not like he sees this while he's pursuing a pagan lifestyle. Most likely, he sees this as a relatively good guy. But he still suffered, apparently, from a small view of God. And therefore a wrong view of himself. Because as Calvin said, 
We don't know ourselves until we first see God. We don't, we can't know ourselves. To put it this way with an illustration, it is as if the light is turned on and the curtain is opened. We've been operating behind a curtain in the dark with echoes of God, but not quite clear about how great he actually is. And then abruptly, the curtain is open and the light is turned on and Isaiah is delivered from impression to reality, from perception to truth, from self-understanding to God-understanding. This is who God actually is. We need to see God's holiness. We need, we need to see the shock of God's holiness because our ears, our ears tend to hear what we want to hear. Our eyes tend to see what we want to see. And be be very clear about this. Only God can reveal himself. That's true tonight. Listen, I could preach my guts out to you guys, but it won't matter at all if God doesn't pull back the curtain and reveal to you, if you are 12 or 82, the reality of his greatness. I can't deliver that to you. God has to do that. God has to pull back that blindness that is in our hearts that is presuming to think of God as the kind and helpful and us as the better than most and limits the distance between us and God and leaves us in a fog of imperception about what he's like. We need the shock of God's holiness. And having seen that, we need, point number two, we need to confess our sinfulness. We need to confess our sinfulness. Having seen the holiness of God, Isaiah responds... As I said, Isaiah is a prophet. He is a man of God. And I would think he thought of himself as better than most in his day. But actually seeing the holiness of God, it changes your view of yourself. Because you realize in a moment that this God, he sees all, he knows all, he deserves all. When you see God, you realize how much I ought to have been thinking of him and how different that would make my everyday life. When you see God, you realize that my sense of being better than those around me is irrelevant when I consider that I am living not for them but for God. When you see God in his holiness, you're not concerned with being better than you were or better than your neighbor. You're concerned with how much he deserves and how lowly I am. When you see the holiness of God, you don't minimize sins or excuse sins or think how they could have been worse. The smallest sin suddenly feels like you throw an old dirty paper towel on the face of the sun. And you realize it doesn't belong there and it can't stay there. Isaiah sees that and he responds Immediately, decisively, with an accurate, listen to this, an accurate assessment of himself. This is not an exaggeration on Isaiah's part. He is not super spiritual. You don't find in this passage an angel coming to him and saying, Isaiah, stop being so down on yourself. You've got to think more highly of yourself the way God thinks of you. The Bible is not kind to the idea of low self-esteem being a problem. The Bible is condemning of the idea of high self-esteem being damnable. The Bible comes to Isaiah, not the, the, the angel comes to Isaiah not to affirm an inaccurate assessment of himself, to provide a solution to the accurate assessment of himself. So Isaiah, when he says, woe is me, he's saying what is true. Now, he sees himself rightly. This isn't an exaggeration. He sees what he actually is. He sees what I actually am. In myself, he sees what you actually are. It's not an exaggeration. It's not religious hyperbole. It's not how you should feel on a youth retreat and not the rest of the time. He sees what is. And he says, woe, woe is me. Woe, it's, it's a word we don't use today because we don't 
think about this way about ourselves very often. But he says, woe is me. It means utter devastation and doom is all that he can expect. Woe is me, he says. I am undone. It means to come apart. It means, in his mind, he is literally disintegrating. His, his identity, his worth, his permanence, his right to be in God's presence, all he can envision is disintegration. All the permanence and stability he thought his righteousness had is being obliterated as he looks at himself and his sin in comparison to the holiness of God who made him and who called him to himself. Woe is me, he says. I am lost. I am not found. I am lost. And then he explains why. I'm a man of unclean lips. For Isaiah, the prophet, the, the lips would have been representative of what was in his heart and his life. He would have said, this is, this is the part of me that most clearly reveals, perhaps he even thought of it as the best he could offer. And he's saying, the best I can offer is unclean in God's sight. I am as unclean as that king who had to live in a leper's house who dared to come into God's holy presence. I, I've been unclean just in my speaking. I, I am unclean. I am unworthy. I, I am a smudge on this otherwise perfectly holy scene. I don't fit in this scene. This is reality. And I am a sinful intruder. I, I am unclean. I deserve to be taken out. I should not be here. I should not be with these beings. So holy is God. I am undone. I am disintegrating before my eyes. My self-confidence is ruined. I have nothing to offer and everything to expect in damnation. Woe is me. And woe are my people. We are all of us undone. Because, notice this, I want you to notice this phrase at the very end. Because my eyes have seen the king. What gives him the accurate knowledge of himself is that he saw God. All of who we are relates to who God is because God is the center of everything. Life is not about me. Life is not about you. The universe is not about what college degree you get or what your career is or how you're doing with your family. Ultimately, ultimately, you are periphery and God is at the center. And that's what he saw. And seeing that, he realized, I have been way off track because this is what's real. My purpose in life has now been revealed. Clearly, it was all meant to be about him. Clearly, no one could be so holy, so majestic, so transcendent, so high and mighty, and not deserve the undivided and absolute pure worship of every single being in this creation. No one could be so holy and not deserve my every thought, my every word, my every deed, my every ambition. No one could be so great and not deserve it all. And when I see what I should be and I see what he is, it shows me what I am because my eyes have seen the king. What's Isaiah doing? He's confessing his sinfulness. He is confessing it. Lord, I am sinful in your sight. I am undone. I am so sinful. There's nothing I could do to make up for this sin. I could spend my life scrubbing my heart. It would never be worthy of this courtroom. I could never make up for all the ways I have defiled your presence with my very existence because of how great you are. This, this, listen, this is the right way to think about understanding sin. Historical godly Christians, they, they haven't been aware of us seeing the sinfulness of our sin as an end in itself, 
as if they find some joy in talking about what a worm they are, what a sinner they are, how terrible they are. Let's just dig a hole and stare into it for the rest of our life. No, that's not why the old preachers and pastors would talk about sin. It's because they spent hours thinking about the holiness of God. And having seen that, they said, sin is evil. They didn't find delight in looking at the evil of sin. They saw the light of God. The curtain had been peeled back, and they said, now I see sin for what it is. Now I see lying and cheating and lust and disrespect and disobedience and manipulation and arrogance and idolatry and fear and anxiety and selfishness. I see it for what it is. And Isaiah, spiritually speaking, throws himself down and says, I am unclean. In light of who you are, I am unclean. Woe is me. He's confessing his sin. He sees its reality. Listen, this is another one of those moments where (laughs) our world has it upside down and so do our hearts. We have this definition of sin in our world that goes something like if you directly harm another human being. Other than that, do whatever you want. That view of sin minimizes God to almost nothing. He's a friendly, helpful, neighborly being that deserves nothing and at best is a referee when we're close to each other. He's helpful when you need him. He's small, he's insignificant because we think of sin as only don't harm other people. When reality is sin is neglecting this God. God is not small and insignificant, but if we think of sin as small and insignificant against him, we have made God small and insignificant. Let me put it this way. God is not a tic-tac. God is not a tic-tac. You know how you use tic-tacs? What are they? They're helpful. You need them on occasion. You're like, oh, a tic-tac would be nice. And you pop a tic-tac. And sometimes we think of God that way. I need a little God now and then to freshen up. I need a little God that day a couple of times. Isn't that how we think about God sometimes? I pretty much do my thing, and sometimes I need a little God tic-tac. So I listen to a little message, I repent of a little thing, I kind of try a little harder, and I pop that thing, and I'm good. God, this God, the God, the God who is, is not a tic-tac. If I can change the metaphor, God is like the sun. God is like the sun. He's like the overwhelming fury of an atomic explosion. And Isaiah, who had been thinking of God as a tic-tac in some ways compared to what he saw now, now realizes, no, no, God is more like the impending doom of an atomic explosion on people who have defied him. That's what God is actually like. And I've been thinking of him like a tic-tac. And he sees God, he sees himself and says, I'm like the guy where it's about to go off and there is nothing. There is absolutely nothing. I'm at ground zero compared to the holiness of God. I see my sin. There is nothing I can do. And so what I declare about you is woe is me. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge its severity. I acknowledge how bad it is, not because of how my culture views it or my heart views it, but because of how bad it is compared to you. God's holiness defines the seriousness of sin and not our feelings about that sin. Let me say that again. God's holiness defines the seriousness of our sin and not our feelings about that sin. You might not feel bad about a particular sin. That doesn't matter because what you feel is not always real. God's holiness defines the seriousness of sin and not how we feel about that sin. We have to line up our feelings with truth. Here's what R.C. Sproul says about sin. And and this is accurate description of sin. If we don't feel this way about the last time we mouthed off to mom or lied a little bit or watched that thing we shouldn't have, it's not that our 
our feelings are right and God and his word is exaggerating. It's that our feelings are wrong and we need the curtain peeled back. We need quotes like this to help us understand the reality of sin in light of God's presence. Pearl says this, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. When we sin, we are saying to our creator, when we disobey him at the slightest point, what are we saying? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. Now, now you picture, aside from God, just picture what one of those seraphim would ever do if somebody said that in God's presence. And that's just a seraphim. Can you imagine the outrage of just a seraphim if somebody said that to God? No. My judgment's better than yours. My wisdom's better than yours. My standards are better than yours. No. Imagine the outrage. And that's an angel who doesn't consider himself worthy to look at the holiness of God. This is what Isaiah sees. Listen, how many times have you, have I been confronted with our sin and our first instinct was either to deny it or to make up for it? Those are always our first instincts and both of those minimize God because we don't want to admit the seriousness of our sin. We see our sin, we usually go these two directions, we deny it, Uh uh-uh, it's not that bad, Uh uh-uh, they did it first. Or, yeah, but I'll try better tomorrow. Listen, if you're standing under the blazing holiness of the sun, doing better tomorrow, and uh uh-uh, doesn't do a thing. The only thing that's right to say is, woe is me. I am a sinner, and there is nothing I can do to deny it or make up for it. Confession requires putting to death our pride, casting aside our superiority, rejecting our self-sufficiency. It's an honest acknowledgement of who we are before God, and there, only there, do we see ourselves Rightly. Now, my friends, especially my young friends, the passage could end right there. It could end right there. That's it. Contrary to American popular opinion, God does not owe anybody a better place when they die. He does not owe anybody that. He doesn't owe Isaiah that. He made the lump of Plato called Isaiah. Isaiah sinned against him, and God has no obligation to do anything at that point other than squish him and start over. It's his Plato. There's no other people in the universe. It belongs to him, and it defies him. He's under no obligation to do anything other than agree with Isaiah. Yes, woe are you. So the next section. This also is a sight of God. Without which we cannot understand ourselves. We need, point three, we need to receive mercy. We need to receive mercy. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. I can only imagine there was a, <laughs> would be a degree of shock. Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your unclean lips. Your guilt is taken away, 
and your sin is atoned for. Now, Isaiah would immediately be thinking of, of an altar where sacrifices are offered. That's what happened in the temple and symbolically. He would have to wonder at this point, how is it possible that my guilt so great in light of this God could be taken away? Taken where? Put on what? Atoned by who? Isaiah himself would have the privilege of answering that question when he wrote about the servant of the Lord who takes our sin on himself. In his holiness, in his moral purity, the servant of the Lord shockingly came into contact without sinning with our sin. And all of the woe that Isaiah anticipated suddenly was transferred to another. And he wrote about it when he wrote, he, the servant of the Lord, was pierced for our transgressions. He, the servant of the Lord, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the woe that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have said no to God. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, instead of obliterating us, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet, yet, he opened not his mouth. Why? Because Isaiah and you had nothing to say. He opened not his mouth like a lamb. He went willingly to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Because he was born to be a sacrifice. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To treat him as Isaiah expected to be treated. And, and brothers and sisters. Oh, let me finish the quote. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, this servant, shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall seek and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And the New Testament makes this overwhelmingly clear. That this servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ who died on the cross, the ultimate altar, to provide the ultimate atonement for all those people who rightly say, woe is me. And we need to get this. If we would see the mercy of God, we must see the holiness of God because Jesus saw that holiness expressed in wrath in our place and for our sake. Jesus, who was never blinded by sin and who knew, knew the holiness of God closely and who aligned his life up perfectly in every instance from his infancy to his death in obedience to his father, was more sensitive to the severity of sin and the greatness of holiness than any sinner has ever been. And he stares unblinking into the holy woe that Isaiah was anticipating and says, I die for the sheep. 
as Paul would write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Isaiah's curse, Isaiah's woe fell on Christ. Isaiah's woe and yours, if you are a believer, fell on Christ. Sproul says it this way, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen. Is seen where? Where is the curtain ultimately peeled back? It's paused, impending over Isaiah. He can see it. This blazing sun atomic bomb of wrath rightly delivered. And it pauses. Surprisingly, it pauses. And God says to Isaiah, no, your sin is atoned for. Well, where does it go? Where does it go? It is unleashed on the perfectly obedient and moral and righteous son of the father. Willingly drinking it all so that Isaiah could hear your guilt is taken away. Taken where? On Christ. Poured out where? On the Son. The most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. Woe to Christ. Atonement for Isaiah. Woe to Christ. Forgiveness for all those who are in Christ. How majestic is the atonement of Jesus Christ? How incredible is the glory of his death? The mercy of God revealed in Christ can only be seen if we see the holiness that he faced in our place, if we put ourselves in Isaiah's shoes, which we are, and stare unblinking if the curtain is peeled back And we see, instead of a kind and helpful God, a God beyond imagination, and yet, shockingly, a God who chooses to obliterate himself in the person of his son and to atone for this undone, disintegrated sinner. That is the gospel. That is what we sing about. And that is what we need God to peel back the curtain so that we can see. That's what we'll see when we get to heaven. That's what we'll be roaring about in heaven. We will roar about the unrivaled glory of the Son and the shocking atonement for Isaiah, our brother, and all of those who believe in Jesus and escape that woe because they have seen clearly the holiness of God and clearly the forgiveness provided by Christ. Now, it's possible there are some here who have never seen the holiness of God And confess their need of Jesus as Savior. Please. I beg you. Do not dare this God to judge you by waiting. You cannot bear his wrath. But you will. If you don't turn to Jesus. Your parents cannot save you. Your pastors cannot save you. Your advance Membership attendance cannot save you. Your knowledge about God's holiness cannot save you. There is only one sinless substitute who can save you, and his name is Jesus. And you must not just know about him. You must come to him and confess, like Isaiah, apart from you, I am lost, and only in you is there salvation. And so, yes, I receive it. I receive it. 
I confess I am a sinner. I don't want to face the judgment of God. And I gratefully, overwhelmingly gratefully receive the mercy offered in Jesus Christ. I I receive it. And nothing is more important to me than that. If you are here and you have never confessed to the Lord Jesus that you are a sinner and you want his salvation, please do that right now. Please do that right now. I beg you. I plead with you. Please do that right now. And if you do, you can join those of us who have and who also want God to continue to pull that curtain ever wider. If you're here and you have been following Jesus, but you know in your heart, as I do in mine, that there are clear ways and perhaps significant ways where you have been tic-tacking God and the astonishing mercy doesn't astonish you anymore and the overwhelming holiness doesn't cause you to tremble in joyful worship anymore, God is able to open the eyes of our heart to show us himself so that we can see ourselves and so that once again, we can see the Savior. So that we can say, as, I, as Charles Spurgeon said, and I will, I'll end with this, when we have confessed him, We can enjoy this truth. Memory, Spurgeon writes, looks back upon past sins with deep sorrow for the sin. And Isaiah 6 should certainly do that. And yet, please receive this. If you are a believer, whether you just became one or you will tonight, or you've been one for 50 years, receive this. Yet, he says, with no dread of any penalty to come. For Christ has paid the debt of his people and received the divine receipt. The result is no soul for whom Jesus died as a substitute can ever be cast into hell. Let us see this God of holiness and mercy revealed in Christ and let us come before him in humble adoration and grateful awe. Let's pray. This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.